Well, anyway, so hey, uh, Ernest, it's good to have you on the show. Uh, we, uh, I, 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 you were, I think it's like an Inotech like continuous delivery conference, and uh, you later gave this talk somewhere else, but. Um, you gave this talk that was basically, if I remember, Uncle Ernest's DevOps Tales or something. I don't think you had like a, uh, you weren't sitting on a rocking chair on a porch with like a corncob pipe, but you know, it, you could have been. <laughs> I, 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 think, I think that was a sense there. And, and I think, um, you know, I, I thought it'd be great to, to have you on here with, with Matt and I to go over kind of like, I mean, you have a long history of doing what we used to call agile infrastructure and then DevOps and things like that at a couple of different companies. Um, and, uh, you know, you've got, you've got some good war stories to go over. Um, so um, to launch into it, why, why don't you um, kind of give us the background, like where, where you start, if we go all the way back to uh, National Instruments, um, I forget what year that was, but how did you, how did you find yourself in the position where you were starting to worry about for, I mean, anything related to Agile in the first place. And then eventually to the part where you basically you were one of the, uh, you guys were one of the early, I don't know, DevOps practitioners maybe? <laughs> or, or, uh, or, or, or scar-bearing uh, pioneers, if, if you will. Exactly. Okay, uh, absolutely. Uh, thanks, Cote. So um, I started at National Instruments back in 2002, uh, managing their web systems team which was a team of folks working with a very large team of developers to maintain uh, their web presence. Uh, Hundreds of applications, dozens and eventually hundreds of servers, a fairly fairly large uh, large scale environment Um, is a major source of revenue and leads to the the company. Um, And the the environment that we found ourselves in, uh, pretty much, it was it was one of those situations where an entire new team came in and an entire new team kind of cycled out at the same time. Uh, primarily, like, like all, all the uh, I, I think in the eighties when there was a rash of Vietnam movies, there was an obligatory scene where there's like the fresh recruits walking off the plane and they're getting it's, made fun of by the the haggard people who are leaving. That's exactly what it was like. So the, the previous uh, previous uh, folks tour was over, uh, and we showed up uh, and got uh, you know a month or two of uh, of cross training, and, and then they were mm-hmm. gone. Right. Um, and it was definitely it was definitely a challenging environment. Uh, large variety of of technologies and applications. Stability was very low. Um, on-call burden was extremely high. Uh, we had weeks with more than 200 on-call pagers. Uh, we had we had a couple. This is back when you would actually have a pager, right? All right. Uh, and we had a couple on-call pagers destroyed as a as a result of and uh, and, and and what what were the actual like? I don't know what you would call it at NI, but applications you were supporting or products like what was what were you getting? What was the stuff that you were getting paged about? Absolutely. So it was a mix of uh, Java applications, Oracle PL SQL applications, Lotus Notes applications, uh, as well as kind of uh, other things that people could think of. Um, over time, as that uh, as that team progressed, we were called on to administer everything from Oracle SOA suite to Vignette content management systems. Uh, pretty much uh, everything that. Everything that wasn't 
uh, a part of kind of the ERP systems uh, uh, ended up becoming part of our purview since we were the only other application administration team right. uh, other than the DBAs that ran the ERP systems, even internal web systems, uh, uh, fell to us uh, for, for many years. Uh, eventually, uh, eventually that got spun off into another team. But, but so a uh, lot of different things and uh, uh, kind of a, a not the most uh, easy set of technologies, especially the um, the Oracle application servers and and stuff like that. Um, so the 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 initial problems were stemmed a lot from lack of automation. Uh, the previous team manager was was actually um, militantly anti automation. Uh, he, he believed that if you automated routine operations, then you'd forget how to perform them yourself over time. Right. You'll, you'll, you'll um, lose touch with what you're doing. That's right. And, and while that uh, makes, makes a certain sort of sense, uh, the, unfortunately, the results kind of spoke for themselves in terms of uh, uh, extremely low uptime and uh, terrible quality of life for the, for the administrators. <laughs> right. Um, and, and, and yeah, so, so you, oh, sorry, go ahead, Matt. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so I remember going through something somewhat similar uh, early in my career, which was this idea as um, an operations team, there was always this one person kind of beating the drum of, if we automate application restarts, then they'll never fix the application, and that's bad. And it's interesting because it kind of ignores the customer perspective of, I just want to do my thing. I don't care whether you're restarting the app every 10 minutes or every minute or three times a day. Um, exactly. And those were the kind of, those were the exact sorts of discussions we had because for sure we had Java applications that needed restarting every 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. One question I have for you is, from a from an on call perspective, was was National Instruments a globally distributed company, and was that driving your on call, um, or was it just customers? You know, a globally distributed customer base. Um, what was kind of driving you know the twenty four seven? Definitely. So it was primarily a globally distributed customer base. Um, in fact, while while I was there, the Kind of the amount of sales across uh, across Ammer, uh, EMEA, and APAC moved very you know moved very strongly towards being fairly even. Right, it's not one of those uh, uh, companies where ninety percent of your sales are domestic. Um, so that the company wasn't super international. When I started there, now uh, during my tenure there, uh, we actually expanded significantly into Hungary, uh, both for manufacturing, and then we had some uh, uh, some IT staff there, and then subsequently to Malaysia, uh, where we got and we ended up having a couple web administrators uh, out of Malaysia as well. Um, so eventually, we were able to staff a little bit more twenty four by seven, but in the beginning, we were definitely faced with a uh, entirely U.S. based staff, but uh, requiring twenty four by seven support uh, uh, to keep the uh, e com revenue coming in. And, and and is that 
is is that a pattern you see nowadays where to do follow the sun support you actually place your people where the sun currently is or are, is there a lot more like remote support of people who work the midnight shift like what 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 do you two see as common out there for that kind of thing i think uh I think larger organizations that can swing it uh, end up taking advantage of follow the sun staffing. Uh, the obviously the majority of of companies out there can't swing that right. Uh, but if you if you are a multinational and you have IT staff in uh, in those different uh, geolocations, then the most of the places I've worked for have moved to do that as as quickly as they can. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you do you do shifts and stuff when you have to. I think shift work, uh, especially for skilled technical professionals, is uh, is kind of dying out just because <laughs> you know what what skilled web administrator that you know can pull down high five, low six figures. Yeah, is going to take a shift job? Like it's not. You know, they just say no, right? Uh, the best you can hope for is uh, is on call during uh, during those periods. Yeah, yeah. It, se- it seems like if you're qualified to be that person, then my uh, my friends in the vendor community would be happy to hire you to work just you know during the day <laughs> <laughs> instead of being in an operations role. Yeah. So what uh, what we ended up doing, and this was before this was before DevOps. This was really before Agile, or, or Agile was just starting to emerge uh, at a philosophical level at this time, <clears throat> but of course hadn't made its way to uh, the the big uh, the big enterprise. Um, we did just intuitively a lot of the things that a stock DevOps talk would tell you to do, right? So uh, we started with automation. We developed more uh, more process and tried to get. Um, tried to get the web administrators involved throughout the different phases of the software development life cycle uh, so that so that things like performance and resiliency could be designed into the applications early on um, we did a lot more partnering with both the uh, application managers and also the business managers um, that one of the biggest uh, advantages that we actually had over time was being able to demonstrate the value of what uh, what our team did to the uh, uh, to the web's business manager, and he became a very uh, strong advocate for us. Yeah, uh, and, and and I mean, you'll have to remind me when it was we first met, but I, I think I think when we met, it must have been like right after that point where you guys finally were trusted <laughs> like 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 cuz I, I seem to remember there was there was a a relatively small team of you guys and you were basically supporting much of the kind of the some of the saas things that ni had back then and and you had had to kind of write a platform and figure out the process that if we're doing this much delivery and we care about uptime and resiliency um, as you're alluding to, we should probably have the the sysadmins talk to the developers who are writing this stuff, <laughs> and 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 that 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 like as, as I remember, I came to visit you guys there, and, and that seemed to be the point you were at is um, you had, it, it kind of dawned on you guys as an organization that we need to combine these two roles together pretty stringently to start releasing as frequently we want and supporting. I mean, I don't know if you would call it a SaaS what you guys are doing, but an always online system essentially. 
Well, yes. Well, so that's interesting because at first we did that kind of in the IT department, right? So supporting those web systems. And then after a number of years of that, National Instruments did decide, hey, we need to ship some SaaS products. And we actually formed a Greenfield team uh, from from myself and a couple folks from my team and a uh, development architect and a couple folks from the IT development side to move over into the R&D organization. Um, and during that first stint, that was 2002 through 2008, I guess, we kind of learned what it is we probably needed to do. We were successful in implementing it to some degree within our team, but um, a, a larger departmental kind of uh, DevOps-ish reorganization was was just not in the cards. It was, uh, I would too, say, too strongly, early. <laughs> strongly siloed. Uh, in fact, I, when I look back on that time, the the biggest. Um, the biggest place where we failed, we actually partnered very well with the developers in the business. It was within IT operations we had our biggest challenge. So we were the large enterprise, right? So we were the web systems team. But there was a Unix team, a Windows team, a network team, a data center team, a Lotus Notes team, All a DBA right. team, a, a whole, whole panoply of uh, technology siloed support teams, right? Uh, and our ability to get those teams to collaborate was actually uh, a lot more of a challenge uh, than than collaborating with the developers. Um, many of those teams, they just weren't necessarily uh, incentivized towards the same goals and vision that the business and development teams were. Um, the, this kind of the standard old DevOps story about these guys want stability and standards and these guys want to actually get something done and they can't come together. And so yeah. uh, our team sat between those two uh, and that was, that was our biggest challenge. When we moved over to, uh, to that SAS Greenfield team, we specifically made the decision that we're going to integrate the team. It's going to be uh, developers and operations folks in, in one team we're going to use all Amazon for infrastructure, mainly because we didn't want to have to deal with any of the infrastructure teams that dealt with infrastructure, right? I mean, it's yeah, so, so, to say that, but we were just like, that is, that's a, we're not going to succeed if we do that. Right. So we're going to. Just I, I mean, I mean, it's interesting because at least, at least for this part of the story, like you essentially have a clean break from the old system, <laughs> right? Like, like, like you, you described an IT department that has the very traditional, um, functional is the wrong word, but it's siloed according to technology basically, right? Or, or kind of like layer of the stack. And then you kind of realize as you're saying like that, that's not working for like how, how fast we want to move in product in R and D. And right. so your first Greenfield thing, you basically just uh, chopped off from that, <laughs> essentially. Exactly. Yeah. And one question, I guess, is to frame up that early 2000s time period, that's kind of when, for many of us, the dark cloud of ITIL was at its, you know, pinnacle. And we had lots of, lots of silo and lots of 
uh, focus around governance and people-based process and maybe not so much automation. So can you talk a little bit about how that played into, you know, moving you one direction or the other, how that presented some challenges or, or maybe some opportunities? Absolutely. So we definitely had uh, we definitely had an ITIL initiative, uh, and I became familiar with ITIL. Um, I, I think I became convinced very quickly that the the high level um, the high level definitions of ITIL were definitely of value. Uh, I still. I still use the kind of ITSM sort of life cycle to describe systems. Um, we had been moving down the path of trying to excel at what we were doing enough that I recognized some of the ITIL implementations uh, as the excessively process-bound ones as probably not probably not going to get us where we wanted to be because we we kind of tried everything. We tried process. We tried, you know, we, we, uh, came up with what we called the systems development life cycle and, and tried to have the, the developers participate in a, in a lot more ordered of a thing. And this is when the development teams were starting to shift to agile. So at first they hadn't heard of it, but after a couple of years, there was never a, uh, determined kind of agile, uh, uptake effort it just it just showed up it was, it's sort of like bottoms up if you will it was a exactly. viral spread what one dev team was doing it and then another dev team was doing it and then 80 percent of the dev teams were doing it and then i hesitate to say all because in any enterprise there's always some hard case somewhere but as, as best as we could tell uh they they all progressed over to agile over the course of about a year and a half, like it was a fairly dramatic shift. And we were faced with the new challenge of we had all these very waterfall-esque processes that we had developed with them. Like, you know, it, it was all in good faith. They had a big waterfall SDLC and we developed a systems process to, to feed into that. And then they left their process behind and went to agile. And we were somewhat left holding the bag, but, um, I, I guess I'm always a big believer in, in taking a positive attitude towards stuff like that. So instead of us just raging against the machine, I said, well, so how could, how could we do infrastructure in an agile manner? At the time there was a, uh, agile infrastructure mailing list, which was mainly, mainly, uh, a couple European folks. It was very low traffic, unfortunately, but I started looking into that and getting getting plugged into uh, uh, how we might do that. And towards the end of that IT stint, we did some experimentation with, you know, how could we build the systems in an agile manner as well? Because the developers needed systems up and running a lot more quickly than we could traditionally provide, right? Because it would be, be like, okay, tell us exactly what you want, and then two months later, we'll have all the perfect systems waiting for you. And the, the developers are starting to be like, well, we, we can't wait that long. Like we have to get started and then we have to start deploying. And, uh, and we said, okay, well, if you, we, we, we learned from what they were doing and said, okay, so agile, you're refactoring. As long as you're fine with us refactoring the systems, you know, if, if you want perfect systems on day one, 
you can't have that, but then again, you're not delivering perfect code on day one. As long as you're willing to accept us refactoring the, the systems you're running on as we go on, we can, we can get you started in a week, right? And they said, that sounds great. Um, so that gave us a little bit of, uh, little bit of runtime and understanding how we might be able to combine agile and infrastructure testing, uh, with, with the development team. Both of those were, uh, I would say extremely, extremely cutting edge ideas to the, to the degree that, you know, when you went out on the Googles and tried to find any information about them and, 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 and to, precious little. and to that end, like, I, I mean, as, as it's progressed over the years to like bring these, these two, uh, well, you, you, ha- you have two polls so far we've gone over. Kind of a pull from, from R&D or product or the business to move faster, basically, <laughs> to, put it yes. my, to put it my phrasing. And then, and then there's a pull from the developers, which is not necessarily moving. Well, it is moving faster, but it's like automating things a lot more, right? Like, why does it take so, so, so long to build this infrastructure, right? Like, I, it shouldn't take this long. And, and 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 then so so to the to the point of like it being kind of cutting edge, um, I imagine from what we were talking about, like the response from from IT was kind of like, hey, let's slow down, youngsters, right? But but how uh, other other than you, like you know, inside inside any individual's head, it's kind of easy to like win a convert, if you will. But like, what was the like day to day experience you had, kind of converting the organization as a whole to like start go from thinking automation was bad <laughs> to, to like automating things to the high degree that, that you had by the time that I met you. Like, I, I mean, I mean, what did, what did you do to convince people like person by person that you should do things in, in a, in a new way? So in the, uh, in the IT role, the, the main people we had to convince were the developers that were under that same pressure to, uh, to move more quickly so there, most of the sales job was, hey, this is going to enable us to move more quickly. So they were on board with it. Um, the, the, the previous uh, guy who was anti-automation and all that had moved out and, and I was the, you know, I was the unquestioned tyrant of the web systems team. So I didn't have to worry <laughs> right. about uh, uh, And To their credit, so all of my guys, like... And this is just kind of a lucky thing. So the the people that that I got on my team after I started there, like we were all very good about talking with each other about approach, and we all ended up seeing the same thing, right? It wasn't that, well, I wanted to do this, but I had these six, you know, hardcore Unix admins under me that don't want to do it. Like uh, we had a bunch of people that really wanted to excel at their jobs. And when we thought philosophically about the problems that were facing us, like everybody, everybody lined up, everybody's like, yeah, that's what we need to do. And you know, that shouldn't go without saying, because a lot of times getting the, the actual systems team on board is one of the, <laughs> is one of the harder challenges. Right. But we were a hundred percent on board and then we went out uh, kind of with a single front and sold the, the development teams on. Yeah. This is what we need to do. And sometimes, you know, and sometimes you just had to do it and show them. I, I know the first time we implemented something to implement uh, automated Java deployments, like 
Now this is bread and butter stuff, right? But back then we were like, okay, we're going to write these scripts and you can use it to, de- to deploy your Java apps on the dev and test environments and then we'll take it and use the exact same script to deploy it on a production environment. Like, you know, people look at you like you're a communist or what, you know, because it, this is... 10 plus years ago right because like, we we still we we still had uh we still had people who feared communism down in austin back then it, it hadn't completely washed over yet <laughs> exactly uh so that was uh uh so with that one we finally were just like you know some of the developers were still like well we don't know and we're just like we're doing it and in a week you can tell us you know what you think and there was complaining, and then the day after we implemented it, it was like all the complaining went away, and everybody acted like it had always been that way. So, yeah, like, okay. Uh, uh, and so, by doing small things like that and gaining trust with those teams, uh, we were then able to get them to trust us when we wanted to do something that that perhaps they didn't understand. So, when we moved over to the uh, SaaS team, we looked at that problem. We we had to do multi-operating system. We had a lot of Windows uh, software at, uh, at National Instruments. And Windows support in things like Chef and Puppet has improved a lot in, in recent years. But, you know, at that time, I think it would be fair to say it was notional at best. Yeah. Um, we ended up needing to do multi-cloud. Again, we started with Amazon uh, because they were the uh, they were the 800-pound gorilla. But due to our relationship with Microsoft, we ended up needing to host some of it in uh, Windows Azure. And we said, you know what? We believe in what we've learned from automation so much. We believe that we need a automation framework where we can model our applications and system, and then we can operate them across these different OSs and clouds. And we're just not going to accept a hodgepodge of solutions. Like it, we, we used the tool chain approach and said that there may be other stuff under the covers, but like it's, it's not okay. And a lot of people didn't, necessarily understand where we were going with that but we had built up enough uh enough trust with them that they said okay we don't really know what you're talking about but we're kind of, we're confident that you do yeah um, and so so i mean to summarize it to make sure like i understand it because because i feel like this is a pattern i see over and over again <laughs> and it'd be interesting to see like like uh if if, if matt sees the same pattern which is um we have we have a new way of doing IT. We'll just call it the cloud way because here we are in 2015, right? Um, and no one really trusts it. There's kind of there's almost like two maybe two to four people who they want to do it that way, and they use the following methods to get. There's two stages to it. One, as you said, they use their tyranny, so they have some power, <laughs> and and tyranny only goes so far. Like you can mandate some things and control some things. But then the second thing that they do is they actually spend a lot of time basically like demoing stuff, like doing a bunch of hands-on like demonstration of like, this is how it works. And I don't need you to fully understand it. And the, the end goal is like, now you trust me. Uh, and it usually comes down to individuals. You trust that I, this individual, knows what I'm doing. And then the second stage is you're basically 
you kind of come up with like, so here's the system we're going to use for doing all of this, right? Like, like you're saying, we need an automation plane that like you, you, you model and package out in dev the same way you do in production. And now that you trust me, I'm going to impose this tool on you, right? And, right. and at that point, then you sort of like win, <laughs> right? Like, like you, you, exactly. you're, you, you, win, you win the first day of like, now we're all in the same, we're all thinking the same essentially. And, and like, like, I mean, is that like, like when you're, uh, we're, we're always joking, Matt, about you, you always like a challenge. <laughs> like, are you seeing a similar pattern play out in, in, in the transformation work you're doing or what, uh, what have you seen over the years? I've seen somewhat of the same. I would say there always has to be like, there just reaches this point where ex you can explain and everybody, you know, what's always interesting is everybody's like, well, where do you have a document? And like <laughs> right. the document never is good enough. Like, yeah, that's a good point. Absolutely. There, it's like a, a multi-step process. Like first you show them and then they're like, oh, that's cute, but that probably won't work with my app. And then you have mm -hmm. to show them like with their app and then they're like, okay, but that, then it's like the acceptance, like okay, but that means I have to change some things and I'm not sure that I'm totally cool with that yet. Um, and then, you know, slowly it, it evolves and that's kind of where that building kind of, um, you know, a, a teamwork approach to tackling a common problem uh, becomes really critical, which uh, for those of us engineers who aren't really used to working with people all that well, that's definitely a learned uh, talent, I would say. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that's probably one of the biggest things that, that I grew in during those years was my kind of leadership and influencing skills. Because you're, you're absolutely right. People, people ask for documentation or they ask for ROI or they ask for you to go off and get metrics but in the end, they don't really want those things, right? They're jerking you off. They're, 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 they're giving you busy work to do because they're not ready to understand or accept it for some reason that usually doesn't have anything to do with you handing them something that proves there's ROI to it. And so figuring out what that is, right? What, what is it that they don't understand or what is it that challenges the way that they're doing things like how can you help them through that because what they're asking you for is frequently a dodge right but uh you and if you you can either yeah the two options that are suboptimal are you go off and give that to them and then they're just like huh yeah i don't find these three things compelling go spend another three months on drilling down on that more or you just don't do it and they and they never, you know, really get on board, right? The, yeah. the third, the third nonlinear option, which is hard for engineers. I mean, I, I'm an engineer by training. I started off, and people are always uh, uh, extremely dubious when they hear this, but very introverted, right? And so, to me, a lot of times, decisions like that seemed like a binary choice, and it took a lot of uh, a lot of work to always say, okay, it, it's not a binary choice. There's other routes, other things you can do. How do you, you know, how can I do that and help them kind of come to the, 
come to the river, right? Yeah, I, 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 I like this notion of uh, people always asking for a document or the, the, uh, the ROI thing. And, and it, it's, you know, I, I mean, like all big company bureaucracy hacks, it's a, it's, it's a double-edged sword that can be used against you or you can use it for yourself. But I always think of that as the assigning homework, right? Like some, someone comes to you with a request and your first stage in, in a large enough organization is like, let me see how much they really want to do it. Exactly. <laughs> and, and you assign yeah, them some, you assign them. Run laps around the building. It's, it's just a, the deliverable isn't important. It's just a, uh, it's, it a shows a level of commitment. And, 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 and then you're, you're right. Like there, there's also a certain amount of, I forget the word to use, but it's also kind of like chaff to throw at people that you want to get rid of. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that, that's one of those areas where like, to use your word, tyranny can sometimes help, but also this tactic is pretty good against tyrants. <laughs> yeah, the assignment I, of homework. Thing, but having to use a mix of mix of approaches, like when when you can make a call and make it stick, you do that. When you need to influence people, you do that. When you have to when you have to cut bait, you do that. I mean, that's that's what we did uh, when we moved to the cloud, right? So one of my uh, personal breaking points, right? So we worked with the, the various infrastructure teams for a long time, and it took six weeks best case to get a new server. And they were always super expensive because we, no matter how frequently we explained that, you know, we do horizontal scaling and all that, they still wanted each one to have dual, you know, dual power supplies and super raid and all this, right? And then in came the VMware salesman, right? And they said, hey, guess what? Sit here, click this button, new server in 15 minutes, right? And, you know, low the low the VP saw that it was good and, you know, we got it and soon we had uh, we had VMware. So then I would go to those teams and I'd say, okay, I need a new server. And now I could get it in four weeks because the two weeks of Dell procurement time had been removed. And all of that remaining stuff was, um, was friction, was internal process time. It's like, well, the, the data center team needs a ticket and then network guy has to give you an IP and yeah. blah, blah, blah. And and all of a sudden, I, I realized, I was like, boy, the, the 15 minutes to four weeks, like, it's, it's purely a tax we're putting on ourselves. And yeah, you, you were doing some, some value stream mapping without knowing yeah. that, essentially. Yeah, I, it, 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 it's not 20%, it's yeah. not 30%. Yeah, it, it, it reminds me of, I, 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 was, I was watching a, a recording of Home Depot talking at a, at a meetup earlier this week. And, and they, there was a similar point in there of like, we, we figured out why it took like four days to do something. And it was just like, you know, tickets and people and just because I don't know, they needed to eat lunch. <laughs> and, and, you know, it, it's, it's not that it's not that they were impossible to solve problems that they they were kind of like hidden, like process problems that you don't really discover until you remove things. And, and I mean, that's, that, that seems like another common step that occurs is you, once you strip away the prime, whatever is blocking the majority of your time, like how long it takes to ship the gear in your example, it makes you discover it's not even a long tail. There's almost like a fat tail of slowness <laughs> that, yeah. that's been hiding behind that one giant blob that you can start to go eliminate. Definitely. 
So uh, in, in, in the interest of, of, of time, um, well, so, so, so one, like, I think there's a recording of you giving like a, a, a very professional talk on all of this, but like, um, Oh yeah. I ended up re uh, giving it at DevOps center prior summit. Uh, Gene Kim wouldn't let me call it uncle Ernest's DevOps story time. Oh, uh, that's, that's a shame. So it's, it's got but, a more, uh, but yeah, more there, there, there's, there's like even more details and tactics and stuff that you went through, but let's, let's go to the second example when, when you are a bizarre voice. Right. And, and I, and I think one, this is, this is equally interesting because it's further along in time, but, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you were basically hired to be like, bring us the DevOps guy or something like that. Right. Like kind of to head up that team and help, help transform things over. So it's almost like you started at a different point in the transformation of like, we know we need this thing. So bring us the sickness. <laughs> uh, definitely. So I, I got uh, initially hired as release manager, um, Bizarre Voice, which is a software as a service company uh, here in Austin, uh, they do ratings and reviews as a service. They had, they had hired a bunch of engineers. They had moved to an agile model, and they they used to have these big bang, you know, ten week releases, right? And they started to try to release more quickly, and it all it all came tumbling down, right? And so they they looked around. They said, okay, we we need somebody to figure this out and help us through it. Uh, so they tapped me and the initial software release problem was all the usual stuff, right? You know, low levels of automated testing, uh, convoluted branching schemes, uh, unclear ownership of system components, right? So, uh, so over a pretty quick period, we got we got them on a uh, every two week release schedule, and then later on we moved it uh, we moved it down to a week. It was a very large, uh, very large legacy code base, so we we got to continuous integration, but we never got to kind of continuous deployment, just release anytime. But I, I think that's okay because there, as as in a lot of organizations, the sales and support and customer service people, you know, they they don't want new stuff going out more than on <laughs> some sort of regular cadence because then they never know what's going on. So um so from there we had started they they knew they wanted to move into more of a DevOps model. So starting out, same deal, dev teams, big operations team. And given given that I had had experience doing that um, uh, myself and a couple other managers kind of broke up the areas of DevOps. We, we wanted to do uh, somewhat of the Netflix model of having a tooling team. Right. right. Uh, and then we had DevOps engineers that were going to embed onto each of the sprint teams. <clears throat> and then we did have a level one uh, kind of outsourced offshore uh, uh, knock sort of knock sort of thing, and th those were the three areas that we identified. And so we we declared the death of the ops team. We said, "Okay, you have some ticket you want to send to ops for them to do something for you. That's no longer a thing. Your your team supports your product. Here, have an ops person. They're going to move on to your team, and so you know uh, they may end up doing some of that in the short term before." Everything gets, you know, uh, everything gets refined. Uh, so we moved to, to that pretty aggressively. Uh, upper upper management uh, there was uh, super supportive. You know, we had ex-Amazon folks, ex-Google folks, right? They, they were all like, yeah, yeah, that's, 
Right. So, so, so they, they, they nowadays right? they, they they had lived through it happening before, so they understood the benefits. Exactly. So there, the the change from an empowerment perspective went very quickly. Um, there, the challenge was more uh, figuring out figuring out the details and getting uh, getting a good enough process uh, for for those teams to be able to balance kind of new development. Uh, support of a legacy platform, high level of kind of uh, escalated support tickets and whatnot, uh, along with kind of new feature development, uh, and so that that was a challenge. You know, it, it uh, was a lot of process development. You're kind of you know balancing Scrum and Kanban uh, constructs, um, and just getting the teams to to adhere to the philosophy, right? We, we, uh, that was an organization that was very philosophical, uh, and had strong dev leads that, uh, that would speak in those terms, right? It's a, you know, and, uh, the management by aphorism, right? It's like, you, <laughs> you write it, you run it, or, you know, what I like the, you know, everybody kind of had their stable of sayings and that was the, that was the dev philosophy of the uh, engineering department, right? Yeah, yeah, and and and, and so I, I mean to 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 get us to wrap up, like, sure, I, sure. did did it work? Absolutely. Uh, there were some false starts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there were new teams doing new development, and I got handed uh, like forty people worth of both uh, both bizarre voice engineers and uh, outsourcers that were uh, maintaining the the legacy platform, the one making all the money, right? Uh, in traditional yeah. newfangled SaaS fashion, there were people off rebuilding s- stuff on the side, but um, getting them used to the concept of DevOps integration, but not handing ops tasks off to an ops engineer yeah. to do traditional fashion, that took, you know, it takes time. Like, it was interesting. So at National Instruments, we always had to make the change almost kind of sometimes management was supportive, but it was more in a hands-off way of, I guess, okay, go go do it, right? We're, you know, <laughs> we don't want to fight about it anymore. Uh, here, you know, management was like, do it tomorrow, but developing the culture, right? Because uh, culture's habit you know you, you don't just airdrop a culture onto somebody and suddenly they're doing it like the change of a culture it's uh it's like uh, exercise right you have to build up those muscles yeah uh and so it was interesting shepherding the team through that time because they were willing i mean you know some some more willing than others right yeah Definitely. yeah no, I, I mean i i think i think i think it's it's the bizarre voice one's a good a good case to compare with the national instruments one because you had you had complete tops down support at, at Bizarre yeah, Voice, right? And 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 then because then that allows you to focus on, as as we were talking about earlier. So does it actually work to move the pagers to the product team, metaphorically and literally speaking, right? And and yeah, and, and beautifully, yeah, yeah. And and as as tends to get proved out, like 
I, I, th- I think the thing that maybe people don't talk about enough is that, as you as you pointed out, it'll take a while, <laughs> but but eventually you can retrain the behaviors, which amount to retraining the processes, which amount to refactoring the culture, basically, and and things can. Oh, absolutely, and then in the end, everyone's happier. It's funny. So during the transition time, we still had the ops team. And we had taken like one engineer and gone and embedded him on, on one of the teams. And when he did, like he put all of his tasks into their Jira project and like they freaked out. They got sticker shock. They were like, what's all this stuff you're putting in here? And then they looked at it and they were like, oh, this is all stuff that needs to happen. And to their credit, they all started pitching in. They're like, well it's totally ridiculous that we're going to expect you to do these 30 stories while we're just, you know, we're just doing this kind of smaller amount of code. Yeah. So the team came together and said, this is what we need to do to ship. And then it was funny because that ops engineer, he would come wander back by the ops area and he had moved to kind of the the developer cadence of working. You know, he'd, he'd wander by and be like, oh, yeah, hey, it's, you know, 4 o'clock, it's beer 30, you know, how are you guys <laughs> doing? And the ops team was still in that, you know, ops firefighting frenzy. That yeah, that, yeah. I, 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 I look at him like, what is your problem, right? Yeah. But uh, it was such a great proof that, you know, it's like, hey, like they – that team has gotten into an equilibrium where there doesn't have to be somebody yeah. sitting there till eight o'clock at night in a big frenzy because the problems get worked out earlier in the, in the process when you do it that yeah. way. Yeah. I, I, f- I forget who came up with this, this, this visual that I stole, but like, I, I remember one, one way of giving therapy to ops people is to say like, you know, all those weird developers who hang out in the Iron Man t-shirts and flip flops, doesn't that seem like a good lifestyle? Exactly. <laughs> right? Like, maybe, maybe. He was wearing flip-flops when he came by and did that, as a matter of fact. Like, everybody's like, what's your problem? Exactly. Like, well, well on, on, on that note, I mean, this, is, this has been great. Like, it's, I, I think, um, you know, I, I mean, it's always good to hear, like, what people have actually been doing to sort of get beyond the bullet points that you see in lots of presentations. So I think that's, that's, what, that's what Matt and I like to do here. And I think, I think you've done exactly that with uh, – you know, in a short amount of time, but yeah, well, I'll, I'll put a, a link to the, to the, if you send me the recording of the presentation and slides and, and other work you've done here in the past, but, but you and, and a courtroy of, of, uh, of other kind of Austin people are pretty good at like, uh, in almost too much detail talking about DevOps and practices. And I think, I think it's a good, it's a good silo, so to speak, to go dig around into of, of, uh, experience that people have been having, uh, down there. But yeah, th- thanks. Thanks yeah. for being on the show. Absolutely. And thanks, man. Yeah, that's why I wanted to do this presentation in this way. Like, there's a lot of DevOps philosophy and DevOps theory. And I wanted to just go through a set of implementations like here. This is what we did. This is how it turned out. These are the mistakes we made. Like, because everybody, everybody that tries to go down this path starts in a different place and they have different challenges and they're always going to have ups and downs. Uh, And that's natural. But I, I think what the story that I've gotten out of four different transformations is if you persevere, you get to an end state where there's no way anybody wants to go back. It really is right. a, a night and day sort of experience for people. All right. Well, that sounds good. Well, uh, so aforementioned show notes, as always, uh, if you go to lordsofcomputing.com, 
you can uh, find them there. And, and I, I forget which number this is. I think this might be eight or nine. But uh, if, you, if you just go to, uh, normally you can go to cote.io slash LOC and the, the number of the episode. But since I don't remember it now, just go to lordsofcomputing.com and you can check those out. And uh, thanks again for being on, Ernest. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Cote, Matt. Yeah, thanks, Ernest. Really appreciate your time and really enjoyed the stories. And we'll see everyone next time.